Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our fifth episode, and we're doing another listener episode with me, Niklas Berlumlal, and with me, Richard Allen. So, one of our listeners uh, came uh, up with a really interesting idea and essentially said this: they, uh, you know, they're working outside of tech right now. They're in the research uh, industry uh, or academia, and they would like to join the tech company because they think it would be fascinating to work in house, but. They also are wondering about how they can take all of the opinions and ideas and insights that they've gained in in their research work into that company and how you can square your own personal opinions with the opinions and positions that that the company takes. Essentially, the question is, you know, how, how do you become a good internal advocate and to what degree is that even possible? Let's start with the possible. Can you, if you join a tech company today, you join one of the large tech companies, can you make a difference? I I mean, I certainly think you can. You need to be realistic um, about the impact you can have on a very large organization, not because they're dismissive, but because they they probably have thought through a lot of the things that you're bringing to the table already. And so, again, uh, they shouldn't be too dismissive. New people coming in brings fresh ideas, and that's great. But there's some sort of balance there. I I think it's incredibly um, uh, helpful for a company to have new voices, particularly ones that are uh, expressing views they haven't heard before. And cognitive diversity is a phrase that's often used that people coming in with different concepts. Um, But I say at the same time, I think a a sort of basic mistake is to come in and kind of go, well, I've got all the solutions. Uh, You guys just haven't thought about these things and I'm just going to bring them to you and not recognize that probably there are a lot of people inside the company who have thought about a lot of the same things and and you know may actually have looked into it more deeply than even you have so you've got to get that balance right as you know uh, i am a fresh voice but i can't just sort of come in and go almost like a critic well you guys are just like stupid you haven't thought these things through and i'm you know going to bring you solutions that are entirely novel sometimes be novel sometimes not yeah yeah, no, no, I think you're right. That seems to be a, a surefire way to fail, which is to yeah. come in and say, well, you're doing it all wrong. Let me tell you how to do it. And so, so, but uh, if you look at, is there, if you look at tech and you look at other industries, is it that different? Because say, man, take, let's take an extreme example, just because it's fun. Uh, say you were to join uh, the Catholic church uh, yes. as a priest. What are your opportunities to impact the Catholic church as a priest vis-a-vis your opportunities to impact what the tech companies actually, you know, you actually have more opportunity to change the organization when we talk about the technology companies, right? I mean, I think there's a difference between knowledge-based businesses and others. So I guess if you came in and said, look, I'll take another example, coal mining, you know, you're mining the coal all wrong. Well, well, probably not because it's a very physical process governed by the laws of physics, you know, and so you need to dig a hole in a certain way. So I actually think Catholic Church and tech companies both to, to, to a much larger degree are ideas-based organizations. And so, you know, there's nothing immutable. Uh, the laws of physics don't stop the Catholic Church deciding that priests can now marry, you know, that's, that's something, it's an idea they have. I guess with the sort of tech company, you're somewhere between the two. You know, when you're dealing with the hardware end of it, it's more like mining. It's more about the laws of physics. You can't, you can't say, look, you know, just make your chips run faster if they won't. But when you're at the software end of it, it's more like the Catholic Church. A, a, a platform can decide to change its platform policies in the same way that Catholic Church can decide whether or not priests can marry. So it's much more mutable, I would say. 
No, that's, I think that's right. I mean, it, it sort of it forces you early on to start to try to recognize the difference between tenets of belief and uh, fact-based opinions, right? There's, yes. there's something there that's interesting, isn't there? Yeah, there's something where, where um, uh, it's this sort of degree of mutability between something that is uh, essentially um, constrained by forces beyond your control uh, you can't change those forces, whether they're, let's say, literally the laws of physics or, or maybe external forces. Sometimes, you know, if you're if you're a car manufacturer and there's a set of regulations, you have to build your cars to meet those regulatory standards. It's, that's a force beyond your control. However much you think a car would be better if it was designed in a completely different way, can't do anything about it. And then there's these things where you have got mutability, uh, where you've got a, a wide degree of sort of choice to make uh, what color you want your car to be it's like entirely up to you no one's regulating you for the color of the car for example let's give an example of something that you think is an ideologically held close belief in some of these companies that's really hard to change and something yeah. that you think is more empirically open so if we get concrete what are what are what are things that that you think can be changed uh, and things that are more uh, more more belief based or more ideological yeah, so I actually think there's a, a there's a large body of things where there is a belief, uh, where a belief has sort of fossilized, uh, become like solidified in qu quite a profound way. And so I, I would say there are, you know, and so people will say this thing is impossible until it becomes possible. And so there are certain things like uh, something I'm sort of skeptical of, which is, you know, checking, uh, get, getting people to register for services by using hard identity documents, for example. I think there's quite a deeply embedded belief uh, that that would be impossible. It would render your system's unworkable. There's no way you could, you know, people are going to get through the sign-up flows if they're forced to use identity documents. There's all kinds of reasons why that can't happen, almost as though it were kind of physical law against it. I think in practical terms, if if uh, everybody moved in that direction, you would find a way to resolve it. Um, and as I say, it's that, in that instance, it's a kind of belief that I sign up to, that I, I feel incredibly uncomfortable personally about the notion of forcing you to have uh, all of these sign-ups, all these documents. But I guess, again, an example, a real-world example outside of this is COVID. Uh, during the period of COVID, there are all sorts of things we've had to do that people might have said were impossible you know, previously, like carrying out health checks on everybody who crosses a border. You know, That was something I think most people said, ah, you know, it's going to collapse the system. And somehow we found ways to make it work, uh, um, for better or worse. So as I say, I think there's a bunch of things like that where within the tech companies, they will say, no, this is impossible but it's not. There are a couple of things actually where they'll say it's impossible. I think they're probably right. And one of the most hotly contested at the moment is this question of backdoors to encrypted systems. So tech people will say that is a kind of laws of whatever physics and human behavior that, you know, if, if a master key exists to an encrypted system and one person has that master key, it creates a risk that that master key will then get into the hands of other people and the entire uh, protection of the encrypted system is is under threat. Um, that that's one where I say there's very very strong belief by everybody. I think who works in the encryption sector that that would be problematic to the degree where they shouldn't do it. And then you have got people on the government side whose very strong belief is, well, oh, no, you you know we could keep a key safely and only use it for the bad guys, and the system's fundamental integrity is not really threatened by that. Yeah, and and it and it brings another question i think into to 
to view that's quite interesting. And that is that if you are joining an organization, whether it's a Catholic church, a tech company or a coal mining company, one of the first things you are wise to do is to look at that industry, not just a company, but the industry and see how has it changed its beliefs over time. And I think there's plenty of really interesting good case studies where you see that there was a certain kind of rhetoric around an issue and then it shifted or changed or that the rhetoric has remained the same for a very long time. I would I would argue, for example, one of the most interesting case studies you can do uh, if you're joining a tech company is to look at the the question of if, whether or not to use artificial intelligence to detect and take down content. Because that started out as a big no-no because it was yes. thought that it would lead to, to takedowns, uh, excessive takedowns that would essentially limit freedom of expression. And after a lot of internal and external pressure, and it's really instructive to think about how those two work together, uh, the view changed. And today, that's something that's used you know, matter-of-factly, you're using artificial intelligence to detect and take down content of different kinds. Um, so so knowing, I guess, one of the things we can distill from this, and it's, it's probably very true for the Catholic Church as well, is that knowing your organization's history and understanding how it has changed its mind before is absolutely essential before you go at it, right? That's right. I think it's exactly right. I think that's a great example, actually, the artificial intelligence one. Certainly, I think um, when I joined uh, uh, the company, formerly known as Facebook, they there was a very sort of strong view. You brought that, away before you were called a metamate, I understand. Before, yes. Is that where you are now? Metamate. Uh, metamate. Um, uh, but, but then I think there was quite a strong view, and we almost expressed that you, know, you must have humans looking at things uh, to be able to make decisions that were reasonable and a, quite, quite a strong view actually in the human rights community as well saying you must have humans looking at things now i mean two, two things sort of come into play and these i think will be relevant for discussing how we make decisions one is you start to understand that the accuracy of humans is not necessarily better than the accuracy of uh, um, uh, machines doing the same work and so then you have to ask look why are you insisting on humans is it because you know when a human making a mistake is somehow better than a machine getting it right. Uh, that somehow we could sort of, uh, you know, there's something so fundamental to the human doing it that, that we're defending that. And then uh, uh, and the other piece I think you start to realize is these are all trade-offs and you start to realize that, you know, again, from a speech point of view, hey, maybe it's not great that it's a machine that's moderating your speech. It doesn't feel great. But by having the machine do that work, the platform can actually allow you to speak. And so from a sort of speech equation point of view, if you didn't have these AI systems, you would have to operate a lot more upfront controls and limit the ability of people to speak in the first place. So the AI, uh, uh, in, in a way, sort of enhances the opportunities to speak as it allows platforms to, to be more relaxed about who comes on and speaks, knowing that they can catch things if they're wrong. So these things always end up as trade-offs, and they move from absolute such What are the things... Um, if you had these conversations is we, we would be sometimes looking at policy decisions and we were under fire and we wanted to go out and we wanted to say things and you put in words like never and, <laughs> uh, you know into your public statements and people wiser people would come along and say never use the word never <laughs> in a public you know we will we will or always we will always have humans review this kind of content we will never you know hand over to the machines you know, because in many cases that's exactly what you're going to do yeah. Um, actually, uh, but the history thing, I think, is important. Again, to your point, another live one at the moment would be uh, around targeted advertising, which we discussed a couple of times. Yeah. I think there is a trend in the industry nudging away from some of the 
very micro-targeting advertising models, but it's just nudging away gently and it's not gone and it's not, I think, going to go anytime very quickly, but you, you can see there's a trend there. So again, if you were coming into the industry and you thought that, you know, hyper-targeted or micro-targeted online advertising was an absolutely terrible thing, it, uh, then you're probably not going to be very comfortable or very happy given that most of the industry is still supported that way over 10 years maybe <laughs> um but next year you are going to be working for a company that is using microtargeted advertising if it's using it today if you've looked at the history of it you can see some shifts but you know if that's the core business model that's the core business model and it ain't going to change overnight because that kind of shift takes years and years uh, to play and, out. and that's that's a really good point too. I mean, there there are a couple of things you have to check before you before you sort of make the leap. And one is that you're comfortable with the core business model, I think. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that you are you need to be comfortable with with the question of whether or not you think that this company net on net is actually contributing uh, good stuff to the world. Um, and I, I don't think I don't believe that you can take a company. It's not like you can save a company you do not believe in by going in and evangelizing. You have to agree on the major premises. That company's existence and of their business model, um, and then uh, when it comes to history, really spend time. I mean, it sounds weird to talk about history because the tech industry is still quite young, but there are plenty of really interesting examples. The AI um, example is one. The another one is the the uh, we talked about this before the localization uh, of jurisdiction of how you ended up with um, a Facebook for Germany, a Facebook for France, etc. From having had a strong globalist position. And that brings us to another point, which I think is important, and that is that there, there is, it's not just a question of external pressure that will change the way that a company thinks, but it's also a question of uh, external environment overall. Globalization is, is backpedaling um, across the world, and so that will then factor into the decisions that the organization is making. So yeah. I think there's, there's something to sort of understanding how organizations change their mind. Yeah, and and you had the, I think so. The, this foundational question is: there's a sorting process, and the tech world is very broad. So, if you know you fundamentally disagree with the premise of a company, <laughs> don't go and work for them. Go and work for the other company <laughs> that is creating the alternative business model, because there's bound to be one or the alternative way of doing things. So I think yeah, your first foundational question is: look, am I sufficiently aligned with this business to go and work for them? Recognizing, as you describe the history, recognizing the things that might be changed over time, the things that might change more quickly, the things that are never going to change because they're part of the fundamental proposition of that that business. Um, and so that sorting out question is really critical and making sure you end up in the right place. And, and I think it's very unhappy for an individual or unhappy for the business if you've gone into it and, and then just immediately reject everything it does. And one of the things I think in this conversation we're talking about, we're talking about people who want to stay in a business and change it. We're not talking about the, the whistleblower, the person who, you know, is in a business and, and dislikes it so much that they want to bring it down effectively. They want to, you know, uh, put it yeah. under so huge external pressure. That's a separate conversation. There's a role for that. But in an ideal world, you know, for an individual, as you described, is going into the public policy arena. I don't think they want to go into a business if they realistically think that in six months' time they're going to be spat out again, you know, horrified by it. Uh, you, sh- you shouldn't be horrified if you've done the research beforehand and understood how that business actually works. As I say, it's not a great experience, I think, uh, for anyone to do deliberately. For some people, it's it's accidental. They went into a business in 
you know, one role and, and they found that uh, something was problematic and they want to, to shine a light on it, that's absolutely fine. But I say from a policy uh, professional point of view, I think it's very unlikely that you would go into a business, you know, so unaware of what it does uh, that you end up sort of getting spat out, as I say, um, feeling yeah. that you need to bring that business down. No, I think a whistleblower, is that's a completely different case because yeah. that's when you've seen something that you think is fundamentally mm-hmm. wrong in yeah. the company and you feel the need to to sort of um, to, to make sure that other people are aware of it as well. So so uh, bracketing that case, there there is there is another there's a risk for what you're describing here when you are a strong expert in your own field and you feel that the company has recruited you to come in and fix whatever you believe to be wrong. And so you come in and on day one you essentially sat sit a number of people down around the table and say, here's what you're doing wrong. That never works because no. external expertise doesn't really translate well to internal expertise directly, does it? No, and, that, and I think there's a, a really important dynamic. Uh, so get clear, it's, it's a, uh, and it's in the pronouns here that the, you need to be thinking once you've signed up for a company, the decisions are decisions that we are making, not decisions that they are making. And, and of course, this is really challenging. If you're an external expert, you have been looking at them uh, this company or these professionals who work in a particular area, I am looking at how they are using artificial intelligence and I have views on that as an external expert and I may criticize it. As soon as you cross over the other side, if you go into the meeting going, you know, this is how, this is the problem with you, you, the people in this company are doing this. It's not, no, it's a problem with about how we are going to approach artificial intelligence. And so as soon as you say signed up, it becomes a shared problem. And I just think if you want to influence it, you have to be talking in those terms. You have to uh, think of it as a shared and owned problem. There's a sense of collective responsibility. And I also think as an external expert, you are making costless decisions about how to do things, which means that you don't have to take into account the organizational complexity within which those decisions actually have to be made. And and, and that's the benefit of having external experts, because you want to have that clean, costless analysis of a situation in order to understand it in the extremes. But when you move into an organization, your second and third order effects are actually going to become really important because your organizational decision making is such a different beast from expert analysis, I feel. And that's that's one of the things that I think sometimes technology companies mess up when they recruit an external expert. They say, why don't you come here? You can really make a difference. You can yeah. come into the company and you can take your expertise. That mode of recruiting people into a company is not helpful, I think. Yeah, I think it's much better to, to have the external expert remain external in those scenarios because it is, is again, it's like um, government. I, I like my government comparisons because I do think they're, <laughs> They're valid, actually, with things like this. So uh, if you have a cabinet system of government, there's this notion of cabinet collective responsibility. All the ministers in the government share all of the decisions. Um, If you're the minister for education, you, you share responsibility for decisions taken by the Ministry of Health, even if you disagree with them, because you've agreed as a cabinet that you own those decisions. If you're outside of that cabinet, uh, as an as a individual member of a parliamentary organization, you can shout and do what you like. You're the independent expert uh, and you can be critical. Once you go inside, you've now accepted this collective responsibility and it's just a very different notion. And actually politicians think about this. There are you know, politicians who feel more comfortable you know, they don't want to go into government. They don't want to be in a cabinet precisely because they want to retain that independence. 
and there are examples of the phenomenon you just described of them, you know, bring people in. Don't worry, you know, Jane or John or whatever, you you do come into the government and we'll listen to you. We we really value your strong independent voice. And once they're inside government, no, <laughs> like you know, they're they're, they're going to be asked to toe the line and not and you know, if they've been brought into the health ministry, not to criticise their educational colleague, uh, they've got to, they've now got to bite their tongue because they're now on the inside. So I think that notion of collective responsibility is a really important one and we should be really candid some people prefer to be outside uh you know being entirely independent and critical i mean i put myself in that position now i feel i'm outside of you know being employed by any of the large tech platforms i can say what i like about them when i work for a large tech platform i couldn't you know i had collective responsibility for what that tech platform did They, they weren't you know oppressing me or binding me with contracts it's actually just a like a genuine understanding of this is how it works. I'm on the inside. I have to own the decisions, including the ones I don't necessarily agree with because it's a collective responsibility. And I like that because it actually does point out that this is this is not just a, a thing you do or something that you're oppressed into doing. It's, it's part of the basic condition of working in-house. And that is that you need to feel comfortable with collective responsibility for decisions. And you need to understand that an organizational decision has a ton more variables to it than uh, expert analysis does. Because in an organizational decision, you also have to look at what are the other things that we can do? What are the alternative costs? Uh, you know, you can be an external expert and you can say you should hire tens of thousands of people to go over all of your content. But if you were to do that, will you then be able to develop the other kinds of products and services that you think are really important that could actually ultimately also help with the same problem if you're successful over time? So it's, it's like these things where organizational decision-making is messy. Expert yes. analysis is pretty um, clean to, to some extent. And I think being comfortable with that is important. So you're, you've chosen a company, the premise with which you agreed. You've studied the history of the industry and the history of that individual company to understand roughly how it changes its mind. You have come into the company and you haven't immediately sat anywhere, everyone down and told them what, what is up and what is down. Um, but you, you really still have views. You, have, you want to change. So how, what's, the, how is, what's your six-month plan when you come into yeah. this company? in order to to get to a point where you can acquire a voice yeah so there's there's a few things that i i think you need to do in order to to build up your the the strength of your voice i mean one one is sort of very organizational which is to understand where the decisions are being made um and and again to take the cabinet government example you know there are there, there are different forces with around a cabinet table. Not everyone's equal. Uh, so the finance minister is invariably the most powerful person around that table, either just after the prime minister or sometimes maybe even ahead of the prime minister. But they're like, you know, and, and then you have different ministries, you know, health and education will be powerful. And there'll be there'll be a sort of long tail of ministries where uh, people are less uh, less interested. Actually, the UK, we used to have one, uh, uh, there's one called Culture, Media and Sport that used to be nicknamed the Ministry of Fun. And uh, it's now, it's now owns internet policy. So it's much more important than it was. But for a long time, you, you, know, you have to recognise that the Ministry of Fun was not as you know, powerful as the Ministry of Health, for example. So understanding that landscape, I think, is critical. And then again, to take the cabinet government example, you get committees and subcommittees. Like it's not every decision is looked at by everybody in the cabinet. They'll have these subcommittees where there are subsets of people. So understanding in your organization who's sitting around the table when decisions are made is really important. 
not assuming that you can be sat around every table. So it's really important you map this out, but not with the view to say, look, I'm going to insert myself everywhere because that will rapidly drive people crazy. Um, so you need to know who's there and what your connection is with them. How, how can you talk to them? Um, I, I had a, a real issue of you know, working working in a large company of with with the sort of FOMO idea, the fear of missing out yeah, with meetings. Yeah. That, you know, pe- <laughs> people, everybody had to be at every meeting. No, no, you don't. But you do need to know which meeting a decision that you care about is going to, and who is going to be in that meeting, and what your relationship is with the people in that meeting. And sometimes it's relevant for them to have you there, and sometimes it's reasonable for you to say, "Could I take part directly?" But in many other instances, you're going to work through somebody else. Uh, and that's particularly true, you know, for example, if you come in a relatively junior level in a policy organization, you may still have something really, really important to say, but it's going to be the head of the policy function who's actually in that meeting with the company leadership. And so, again, if you want to have influence, you know, the best way to do that is to persuade the head of your policy function that your ideas are great and make them confident enough to represent them in that meeting, uh, in the meetings where they're sat. And then they'll decide over time whether they want to bring you in or they'll represent it directly. But if they don't support you, they don't support your ideas, it's a non-starter. <laughs> you know, that's that's absolutely critical. So who who is in the decision-making meetings for the things that you care about? What is your relationship with them? And how do you persuade them that you have something credible and valuable to add, I think is is the sort of first mapping exercise. And I mean, going to what would make for a credible and valuable contribution, uh, there's a lot of sort of substantive detail there. And then there's another thing here that we, we should also be really upfront and honest about, and that is that the different voices have different votes in, yes. in technology companies. A chief engineer for a particular product, for example, will have a much weightier voice than somebody who is uh, a policy expert on that particular product very often. And the reason is that, that it's an engineering-heavy industry, and engineers actually have an enormous value to these companies, and so their decisions matter a lot. So one of the other things you have to do after you map out these decisions making processes, which is, by the way, really, really hard, because one of the key things that we used to ask ourselves is who's, who's, who's going to make this decision? And, or even worse than that, which is where this, did this decision come from? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Trying to trace the origin of a decision, which is a, which is a slightly depressing but very eye-opening exercise. And so, so besides that, you also have to build your alliances, and you have yes. to build your your friendships with people who will listen to you which is why you can't just jump in because you have as you as you would have pointed out and when we talked about this you don't have the social capital right that's right so you need to build your social capital it's like any organization if you are helpful to other people then they will remember that and it's not again it's not you can't be it's not too explicit it's not like you know i scratch your back you scratch mine sort of very explicitly but just Again, if you're a good person and you like to help other people and they come to you and ask for favors, then do them. And I, I remember I would do things like the, the sales team would ask me to come along to a presentation to some of their clients. They wanted to you know, reassure clients that we were across policy issues on things like child safety. And, and frankly, I could have said, no, you know, that's a sales meeting. It's got nothing to do with me. Uh, I, I'm too busy. But you don't. I think if you're smart about this, you, you say, look, if it's a something that's reasonably interesting, I would get something out of it. I would understand a little bit more about the clients, the people that actually were buying the advertising from the company, and, the, and that's actually useful to me. But, but equally importantly, you start then to build a reputation as somebody who's willing to help. 
uh, and somebody who's willing to sort of go a little bit outside of their immediate focus to help others. Um, so that's your legal team, your sales team, your comms team, you know, doing that uh, media appearance that you really don't want to do, but the comms team desperately needs someone to go out there and defend the company. That's, I think, really important for building up your social capital. And then, and then when you need something, you know, you can call on people and just at a human level, they'll feel much more willing to engage with something that you want because you were such a helpful person uh, for things that they wanted. And it's important to call out here that a lot of times you will hear, I don't want to work in an organization where there's politics, but yeah. every single organization has politics and yeah. you need to be able to navigate it. And it's a question of what kind of politics you engage in. If it's Machiavellian politics at zero sum, trying to accrue power over time, where you're just going to try to, to own the information and not share it, you're, that's the wrong way to go. What you want to do is you want to practice Aristotelian politics, the, the kind of politics that builds on strong relationships and actually has first and foremost, you know, as its focus, the, the good of first your users, then your company, and then at the very last point, your own function. Yeah. The idea that you sort of should make decisions that favor your function is always going to be a looser idea. Yes, exactly. You should be. You, that, that's the wrong kind of politics. The politics of, you know, I, I want extra uh, in the jargon headcount. You know, yeah. I, want, I want some more staff to work for me at the expense of some other function within the company. That's that's the wrong kind of politics. It's more that how do we all move together? And and again, if you're helpful to other functions. When you ask for that extra headcount, there are going to be voices around the table saying, well, these guys are actually useful, so let's give it to them. You don't need to play the sort of classic zero-sum game politics of if I'm going to win, you guys have to lose. It can be um, much more human and much more so that, that sort of basic social level of I want to help the people who help me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so recapping, you've looked mm. at the company, you agree with the premise, you've studied the industry and the company and see how it changes its views. You have joined the company, you're now mapping the decisions, you're figuring out the alliances, you're building your social capital. And now you're at this point where, where you have a few views about how the company does things and you really want to, to sort of make those views known. How do you what's the best structured argument if you're coming into a room there's representation from engineering there's representation from sales you have your corp comms friends usually you can get along with them and that's a good alliance to build early yeah. and, and you're sitting down and you now want to convince the whole group around the table to change their mind how do you, how, what's yeah. the how do you open that discussion i mean there are i think two again they're critical relationships you need to build inside the company and critical skills you need to develop and they're around um data and product. Uh, uh, and so you need to have an argument that's based on, if you're saying don't do A, do B, which is typically how these arguments are going, you need to know that that would work from a product point of view. So you need to have really good relationships with the engineers and, and have sort of fleshed out the alternative a little. I mean, it's so much more powerful to go in and say, don't do A, do B, and B looks like this, and I've checked with so-and-so and B is actually workable and here's why with some detail than it is to go, I hate A, we must stop doing A. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's not A but B and I know that B works uh, because I spent the time and I took the effort to make sure that I understood how B worked. And then also, again, critically having the data and making friends with the data people is so important. Uh, in any organization, there's, there's various experts across the company who will understand 
how the data works. And, and again, if you're in a, sometimes it's necessarily a, a, a confrontational a, a de debate because you are saying you really do want to move the company from doing A to doing B. And the people who defend A will have data to support why A is good. And so again, if you haven't got the data to indicate why B is going to be better, uh, or at least sketched out th that data, uh, that's that's not going to help you. Uh, or, or even if you just don't understand the data behind the A, behind the status quo. So if you don't understand why you're doing the status quo, your arguments can be shot down very quickly. You know, it's like we should stop doing A, but A means, let's say, you know, that our artificial intelligence is able to remove a thousand pieces of hate speech a day. And you're like, oh, really? Is it that many? You know, if you yeah. didn't know, if you didn't know that, um, then you're not going to get off to a good start. So you need to know what a, you know, what the data is behind A. And then if you come up with B and said, well, I think we should use this other system, this other algorithm for the hate speech uh, uh, um, uh, uh, removal, and that other algorithm for the hate speech removal is now going to remove 800 pieces a day, but better, you know, in a better quality. Uh, then you, you again, you need the data that supports that. So you need to know we're going from a thousand to eight hundred, but here's why the eight hundred is better than a thousand, and so on. And you'll only get that if you know the product people and you know the data people inside your organization, and have been able to work with them before you walk into that room. And so there's something incredibly important in what you're saying here that I want to tease out, and that is that almost all of the things that you've mentioned now in terms of how you convince an internal set of stakeholders have been about internal data and yes. about internal views, etc. So one of the key things that public policy can help with is, of course, what people outside of the company thinks. But you didn't start with that. You started with what the internal data said. You started with what was possible within the company. And I guess you would add on top of that, and politicians will be really happy at the end of it. But you didn't lead with that. Why is uh, that? I mean, I, I found, uh, again, this is sort of learning over many years, that um, that was a really hard argument to make so so i care about what the politicians are saying and doing it's really hard to translate that to something that people inside the company would care about but but there's a couple of dynamics in play there you know one is that they're starting but it's to say well well you policy people it's your job to fix those politicians so kind of don't dump this on me and and i know it's more complicated than that but it, it, you know if you go in and just say well the politicians want this then they'll come straight back at you and go well make the politicians want something else so uh, it's just not a great leading argument even though it's in there i actually found the most effective way to to get the uh, political sense through is through direct experience so, so again, if you translate from the politicians, you say, look, the politicians in Germany are mad about this issue, we've got to fix it. Like, that's one thing. If you take the people who are involved in the decision-making, the people who are building those hate speech algorithms, and if you can find a forum within which they can meet the politicians or others in Germany who are mad about the hate speech issue, it actually makes it much more real for them. And then it becomes a real problem they're dealing with run the political problem, if that makes sense. So the, the political problem is the politician is mad at us. The real problem is people are upset at the hate speech. Uh, uh, and, you know, and people being upset at the hate speech has led to the politician getting involved. But it, it's the people, the users who are upset about it that I think is most powerful. And, and again, finding some way that you can uh, help your colleagues to see that and experience it firsthand, I think is really really critical um so yeah so learning of over many years was sort of 
yeah, the argumentation of saying, look, I deal with the politicians, the politicians are mad about this, uh, is not the most persuasive way to try and affect change inside a company. It's much better um, both to sort of substantively explain why a different solution is better and where you need them to really understand the political dynamic, get people out there, meeting the people in the political world and hearing about their concerns firsthand. Don't don't act as too much of a buffer between those two worlds because you don't really help anyone. And, and this is a, this is an important thing because a lot of policy professionals will, will think that I translate the outside world to the inside world and that's what I do. And they will listen to me because I am the interpreter for or I'm the spokesperson for the external world. It doesn't really work that way because what actually happens in, in a decision is just 5% of what has happened before it. And one of the things that you said right now that I think is crucial if you want to really affect the company is that you have to realize that the people around that table bring their experiences in to the room and you have to be an active part of curating and building that experience so that they too have met the good kind of politician that will be you know someone who listens to their people and then relays the views of their people to your internal stakeholders that is that is almost i don't mean this to sound paternalistic but it's almost like an educational task for somebody who works in policy right exactly and and i say i'm guilty i thought for a long time my role was to protect the company from the politicians and you know that these uh, you know, the people in the company were busy getting on build, building stuff and that was the most important thing i shouldn't distract them and in fact i was hired to deal with those pesky politicians and regulators so that the the engineers and others wouldn't be distracted and now when i reflect back on it i think some of the mo- most meaningful experiences were when we got them together just to, to give a a very practical example, we, we were dealing for a long period of time with cookies and data protection authorities in Europe who uh, found cookies really, really problematic for all sorts of reasons. And I would have colleagues inside the company who were you know, engineers and, and, and their view was, look, you know, co- cookies are relatively benign. They're used for lots of good security purposes. Kind of almost all we need to do or all, all, all you need to do, policy person, is explain to these regulators why they're good and they'll sort of back off. And we tried that, <laughs> it didn't work, and we end up in all these court cases and all this sort of stuff. And then, you, then there was a point at which we sort of said, look, we'll bring some of the engineers out to go and meet some of the data protection authorities and talk it through. And I thought that was just really instructive. It was actually instructive for the data protection authorities to hear from somebody you know, who genuinely uh, uses these cookies for security purposes and has a genuine use of them, who talking passionately about how how difficult it would be if they didn't have uh, the ability to use cookies for those those reasons. But at the same time, the engineer could hear that the regulator, whilst you know, listening with half an ear to that, actually didn't really care because they just fundamentally hated cookies. And and yeah, and so they would then take that back and you could say to them, look, you know, we can't just explain this away. We have got a problem. We maybe need to look for some alternatives because this ain't going to go away. So it's that kind of connection. And I had others around some of the content uh, moderation stuff where connecting the people inside the company who do the work with some of the people in the policy and regulatory space in a controlled environment. This is not in a committee hearing because a committee hearing is grandstanding is completely useless. As a, that's as a where you should jump in and protect yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah that's yeah. not a way to exchange information. But in in and again, don't be paranoid about private meetings. These should be private meetings. Some people say, "Why should it be private? It's government meeting a tech company. It's plotting. It's not." But in a private space where 
you know, you're not doing it uh, as a performative thing, neither the tech company nor the politician or regulators performing. Uh, if they're able to do it as a genuine information exchange exercise, those I thought were some of the most valuable things. And if I were sort of doing all of this again, I think I would be thinking much more about how I create those opportunities for real exchange and for my colleagues inside the company to actually feel uh, some of the pressure directly from outside and, un and understand those dynamics rather than, say, always being translated through me. So it would be quite a different way of achieving it. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's such a good point. And I think that curating the experiences that the internal decision makers have of the external world is important in two ways. One is on the subject matter, right, where you can really understand why somebody doesn't like cookies or why somebody feels really strongly about terrorist imagery on the internet or you know, something like that and why it's so important. And, and that's that's the first step. The second, perhaps deeper and to me, much more consequential thing I saw happen in these meetings, we did the same thing. We brought our decision makers with us after a while when we started to, to realize that otherwise they would not have the experience they needed to make these decisions. The other thing was this, and that was that they needed to understand that political decision making was not about what was the smartest thing or what no. was technically the right thing or what was true or what was legal. It was a very different flavor of decision making and one that they had not been exposed to in their professional careers before. They did not understand how politicians make decisions or why politics is much more about how we live together than, what, yes. uh, than about what's right or wrong, right? There's something yeah. there about teaching almost like it, it, it's a language skill almost. That's right. And, and you're right. The, the, um, I mean, you always helpfully remind us that politics is, is about how we live together. And there's another phrase, which is politics is the art of compromise. Yeah. Uh, and the art of compromise sometimes means it can be quite sort of messy and mushy and everybody's getting a bit of what they want uh, and what they want can be motivated by all sorts of different things including you know a minister just being seen to be tough on something and to have done something because that's what they want in terms of their own electoral prospects um so that kind of decision making i think is often incredibly countercultural for people in tech companies where there's a right and wrong way of doing things you know i code it like this and it runs very slowly and badly i code it like that and it runs quickly and then we saw the phrase in facebook code wins arguments you know i just I, I can objectively demonstrate why this version of the code is better than that version of the code Politics is utterly, utterly different from that world. And, you know, code does not win arguments in politics. Um, I say largely because you're actually often trying to get to a compromise. You're not trying to get to a position where one side absolutely wins and the other absolutely loses. You're quite often trying to get to a place where everybody gets a little bit of a win. Um, and so it's very different. And I, I had that same experience of just very countercultural. But for somebody to understand that, I think is really important. Uh, um, you know, it avoids mistakes where, uh, again, I used to have, uh, sometimes get this from colleagues to say, look, you know, politician wants X. If we give them X, will that end the matter? Will they then just shut up? And you're like, nope. <laughs> and they'll be like, so why am I going to bother giving them X? Because giving them X will will allow us to have a better conversation about why, which is going to come down the track in six months or a year's time. And, and but that's a, again very different uh, notion. You know, a lot of these things are processes; they're not events. Uh, they're not, they're, you know, the people who deal with counter-terrorist speech are never going to say, well, job done. <laughs> We've done, we dealt with terrorism. Uh, there's always going to be something new they want. And again, I understand why that's challenging for somebody who, you know, wants to build 
the thing the politician wants and then be able to tick it off the list and say, job done. Um, but it, it's never going to be like that in our world, I'm afraid. The product political fit is not a feature. It's an it's ongoing not... <laughs> problem. I think that's right. I just really, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, and it's not a bug either, which is the other thing that's important to remember. And I, I, and I, I think this is, this is so important. And also, to, to honestly, one of the hardest things you can do. Um, and, and I think it's, you can get stuck in a very bad place as a policy person if you think that your internal stakeholders just don't get it. Your internal yeah. stakeholders are super smart. Uh, they know their stuff. What they don't get is this new language. They don't have the language skills to understand how politics works. And I think one of the things that's really instructive is to, again, look at a case study. And I think the, the most sort of clear case study of where technical efficiency and, and political legitimacy have come into conflict is around the question of data localization. Yes, uh, because data localization from a pure sort of technical perspective is bonkers. What yeah. you want to minimize is lag. You don't want to maximize jurisdiction. And so just go back and look at how those discussions have played out over time in your organization. And you will see how a number of people have slowly come to realize that this is not an efficiency problem and we can't solve it as an efficiency problem. This is a legitimacy problem. And I think the efficiency legitimacy trade-off is one that if you, if you get this right, it will be super helpful for all of the coming decisions that a company has to make. So it's about a decision style that you're you're trying to build in addition to contributing subject matter expertise, right? Yeah. I mean, there's also, I think, data localization is is a great example, actually, because it, it also illustrates something else, which is what politicians say. And what they actually want, they, they can be quite different things. And again, it's not, uh, I'm not going down the route of politicians lie, but what they do is they emphasize certain things over others. Um, and, and if you just listen to what they've emphasized, you often then misunderstand their motives. So data localization, you know, of course, politicians are going to say, well, what's really important is that the data is in my jurisdiction so I can protect the privacy rights of uh, individuals in my country. That's, that's what they're going to lean, lead on. And somebody on the tech side is going to say, well, you know, that isn't the real issue. I mean, where the data is held is not the critical thing from a privacy point of view. What's most important is how secure the data centers are, how secure that infrastructure is. And, and they're actually going to say, look, my centralized infrastructure, I can keep more secure than I can do if I have pots of data scattered around the world. And so, so the starting point is like, well, what the politicians have just asked for uh, is contradictory to what they're asking, contradictory internally. They're saying they want more privacy for their users and they're saying that they want me to start scattering the data around. Now, what they miss is that what the politician also wants is they want the data in their jurisdiction so that their law enforcement agencies can get hold of it more easily. Of course, they're not going to lead on that because that it doesn't sound very friendly. And they may well want uh, in, uh, um, investment in the infrastructure in their country. They want people to spend money buying data centers. So as I say, we would understand that from a policy point of view, there's a bucket of things that the politician is really interested in when they, they're asking for data localization. Um, uh, but the rhetoric that you get publicly and that your colleagues may hear will appear to be internally contradictory because it's just focused on one of the, th- the aspects of it which is this sort of privacy aspect which may actually be the weakest uh, argument from a technical point of view
Yes, and I think it's also important to realize that when, when you're uh, bringing people with you, they can actually get access to the sense in the room and they will understand that it, it might not have been about the security. It might also be about things that are much more hard to grasp, like the sense of sovereignty. If the data yeah. is not in my country, I don't understand where it is. And I, I, I just want to make sure it's here if I need it for law enforcement purposes or you know for the investment purposes or just to know that my data is in my country. It's sort of almost like there is a sense here of of um of of there's there's a question of power that it's, i think it's, 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 it's called a brexity sense yes, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> taking back control taking back there. control and having power i do think yeah. that's it i think there's a and once you're in the room with someone you can hear in their voice and you can understand what it is they're arguing for and i think that's why it's so important so again recapping then you've checked the premise you're okay with it you've looked at yeah. the industry the company history you've built your social capital by mapping the decision making and figuring out what alliances you want to be building over time because you know you can't make decisions on your own or you can't uh, influence decisions on your own you're entering the room you have the data you have a sense of an alternative you really can come into this room and say here's here's why i think we should not do a but we should do b and here's how b is feasible and done the feasibility analysis but then you also spent time and this is why you just can't jump into an organization and, and changing you spend time to bring your decision makers with you and curate their experience by making sure they meet the right politicians. And there's nothing so important, actually, to that point, to be able to identify politicians that have that capability to interact with mm. people who have less political experience and just bring them along, not, not sort of yelling at them or grandstanding even in private meetings, but the kinds of politicians who are inclusive enough to see that we probably all want to have the same outcome at the end in some version. And as you've curated sort of that experience with your decision makers, that's the point at which you're poised to make a real impact on a company. So that sort of sum it up for you. Yeah, I think it does. And, and um, to your point, yeah, examples of where this has worked well and badly, I would say in the counterterrorism space, we've referred to it a few times, actually you do get to that point where, you know, it's, broadly agree that the tech companies and the politicians have shared objectives. And you do often end up with those spaces where you can have really constructive conversations between the experts on your side, on the company side, and uh, the people on the political side. Really, really constructive conversations. Again, often not, not held in full public glare, um, but those are really great conversations. That's where I think it sort of works at the best side of it. And perhaps at the worst end is where it's very political. Uh, and and you know the the issue of sort of elections and fake news and all of that perhaps is at the end where there is kind of least common ground and most uh, sort of shouting at each other uh, and a, and a sort of um, almost a conflict in fundamental values between platforms that want people to be able to circulate information and politicians who feel that that's actually undermining their own uh, immediate. Um, prospects and and their own uh, democratic system. So you get examples of all of that, but I think you summed up well exactly what you're aiming for. Final point I would make that just on that is a uh, is important to remember it's a long game, and this is just for you sort of internally. Where you know sometimes you bring something forward, it doesn't land. You failed, even though you followed all the steps that you've set out. You failed to persuade people, but it doesn't land today. Um, important thing is not to just kind of get disheartened and go well I give up <laughs> I'm going to move on to something else or this is not for me it may well be that you were just early 
and that this is something that people will get ready for, you know, in a year's time, they'll be coming back to you and going, oh, I, I think we need to do that now. Um, and there you have to resist the temptation to go, told you so. Uh, which is, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then you have to graciously sort of help them do that. So again, thinking about which um, pots you want to keep on the boil, which, which really were dead ends. You, you took something through, they've made a decision, you've made a decision, we've made a decision collectively as a company not to follow the th your preferred route and we're going to accept that and move on. Which are the ones where you want to keep it on the boil because actually, you know, it's something you do want to come back to, uh, but maybe you need a little bit more time or there need to be a few more developments. Which are the ones that you, you really need to come back with version two and version three? Uh, it will work if only you make it better. Um, and, and then occasionally, yeah, which of those where it, it's a symbol that something is so broken, it's really hard for you now to work in that organization. Yes. And I think I think it's also important to keep track of the external trajectory of trends, to have a sense of where is the world heading, right? So the uh, And I think the, the more you can do that, the more you can also be attuned to when the organization can make the kinds of decisions that you feel it should make. And, and, and it's important not to get frustrated by that. Sometimes people will say things like, oh, you only change your mind when you're forced to. And I, that's not my experience. I think actually organizations change their mind when the environment is in a certain state when they have a certain experience that helps them to make that decision and when um, when there's somebody who is a strong advocate internally for exactly that decision. So it really is the case that organizations change their mind. They're not only forced to it by external forces. There will be cases where external forces are super important and where there's a crisis or there's a scandal. But the majority of the decisions that are made in organizations are not like that. The majority of decisions are actually made uh, outside of external pressure and influence the long term. So I like the notion of the long game. It seems to be yeah. really, really important. And and so you've uh, to sort of go back to our listeners' question. Then the 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 reality is that if you're moving from an external position as an academic expert into a company as an in-house uh, policy professional, you more than anything need to give it time, right? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, uh, it is going to take time. It's a very different profession. If you've really thought it through uh, and that you do want to be collectively part of this organization, taking credit for the good it does, as well as taking blame for when things go wrong. Uh, if that feels good to you, then that's something that you're only really going to be able to develop over, I would say, like a minimum of a year. It's going to be a year before you really feel embedded in any organization. And then you're really going to be flying, hopefully, for a, you know, two or three years after that, at least. Um, so it's that kind of long game. The idea, yeah, I come in, my work is done in six months, I move on. Uh, I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, you know, and if that's your expectation, then I would ask you to reconsider and think again. So, so think, you know, it's going to take me a year to get to the place probably where I'm going to be optimal uh, in an organization or start to be optimal. Um, and a lot of learning along the way and a lot of taking responsibility for uh, these collective decisions. But hopefully, yes. hopefully your correspondent will feel it's worth it because again, as we said earlier, you know, companies need new blood. And I'm always delighted I get people reaching out to me quite often who are wanting to go and work at um, Meta and become uh, Metamates. Is that the right word? Yeah, I'm always delighted if they're good people, I would encourage them. They, you know, the companies need 
um, they're only going to improve if they can keep bringing good people in. And I've had a lot of good people approach me and I'm really, really delighted and really keen to help as long as they've gone through this thought process and they know what they're signing up for and they know what they're going into. Um, then I think it can be a win-win for the individual and for the company. Yes, agreed. It's a very worthwhile thing to do. And it also is not necessarily a final decision. You can, as you've just demonstrated, also become an an independent external expert again. And one of the advantages of that is that we get to opine in different ways, which is nice. And so uh, there's much more opining to be had where this webcast, where this podcast can be found on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Do keep listener questions coming, and uh, we will um, take them up, although next episode is going to be about something different. So tune in and see you then, or listen to us then, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.